There's a battle going on for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. On Ladies Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. Ladies Can We Talk starts now. Well, good evening and welcome, and thank you so very much for tuning in to Ladies Can We Talk. This is your host, Debbie Georgettis, and at Ladies Can We Talk, we simply try to speak up for and embrace the unique and exceptional identity of America and tell you why it matters to you every week. Well, I often say in this beginning segment that we were about to launch on our first 15, and I, this is my Speak Up for America segment, but our clock has changed, so now it's our first five that we have in this opening segment. And I always try to do some special focus about something we need to speak up for, understand better about America. And I'm going to focus tonight on Earth Day. We all, uh, around the country, I'm sure most people were aware that we had the celebration of a holiday that people call Earth Day just a few days ago. And the nice or good thing about Earth Day is it's certainly wonderful to embrace the idea that people have a responsibility to be good stewards of the environment, to care about the environment and clean air and clean water. But the environmental movement that is behind Earth Day, and it is still very active today, has a much bigger and I think often unseen agenda. And I want to talk about that tonight, but I want to start by saying... I think it's really important to take a quick look at the first Earth Day in 1970, the year 1970. And that on that first Earth Day, there were some predictions made by people. And I want to share some of them with you just to help us get a clear picture of how extreme some of the people are and some of the thinking is behind Earth Day. Okay, so here, here are some predictions that were made. Number one, this was a prediction on Earth Day in 1970. Civilization will end within 15 to 30 years. And that wasn't some, you know, goofball Occupy Wall Street type. That was a Harvard biologist, Dr. George Wald, who said that civilization would end. We should all be gone That because even 30 years was over in the year 2000. Another one from a Stanford professor, Dr. Paul Ehrlich. 100 to 200 million people per year will be starving to death during the next 10 years. Okay, this, this did not happen in case you didn't know. In fact, in fact, I will just tell you, world food production is, is greatly increased since that time. And the world's domestic product is greatly increased. And essentially, this um, entire uh, you know, prediction was, was completely false. But I'm going to keep going because there are several other ones. Population will inevitably and completely outstrip whatever small increases in food supplies we make. Again, Paul Ehrlich talking about food supply that won't be enough food. We're all going to go under here. Also, another one that was just widely spread in 1970, demographers agree almost unanimously. 30 years from now, the entire world will be in famine. That means no food starving to death in the year 2000. That would have been by the year 2000. And... Another one, uh, in a decade, this is again, January 1970, in a decade, urban dwellers will have to wear gas masks to survive air pollution. And I could go on and on. And the reason I'm telling you this is not to mock environmentalists, but to make the point that people who embrace this radical environmentalism have as their tool to make people do what they want them to do 
the, the tactic or threat of fear, of starvation, of, you know, we can't even breathe the air. And these are 1970 experts, Stanford, Harvard types, saying that. Obviously, they were all wildly wrong. But today, think about where we are. We have the climate change conference that just happened last year. And then this past Friday, on as a celebration of Earth Day, the countries, many countries gathered at the UN and signed the climate change deal. We're going to be talking about the climate change deal in the next segment of this show with an expert, uh, Robert Heineke, from the Texas Public Policy Foundation, about what that climate deal were really to come to be enforced in America, what that would do to us. And we just give you a short clue. You wouldn't like it very much. But also I mentioned this Earth Day thing. Environmentalism today, and even back then, but even more so today, it is the home of the radical left, the people who just love big government control over everything. If you'll notice, a lot of things that the the climate types are saying must be done and must be followed are, are things they're not doing. They're flying in their private jets all over the world telling us to stop driving our cars. And, you know, I want just one other really important thing. These are like talking points. You know, I say in the show all the time, you have to have your talking points ready. You have to engage on the issues of the day with people that you know. Well, here's a talking point to keep in mind. CO2, the villain in environmentalism, what the, you know, the, the people who want to regulate cars and airplanes and want to force us all into, you know, uh, use of things beside fossil fuels. They're all worried about CO2, a naturally occurring uh, element in the environment. And I think these are really important facts for your facts to know and tell and share with your friends. CO2, it's an important but a trace gas in Earth's atmosphere. It constitutes 0.04% of the atmosphere, under 1%. It's essentially 400 parts per million. And, you know, they do reconstructions to look back over the uh, millennia, the thousands of years, what kind of what the levels were um, in previous times. And so long before there were cars, long before there were cars, um, there was at at one point in history, 7000 parts per million during the Cambrian period. So, folks, this Earth Day stuff is a bunch of silliness. And the idea we we salute to the environmentalists unwise for America. Come back after a break. We're going to talk to Robert Heineke about what President Obama is trying to commit you and America to in the UN Paris climate deal. Talk to you in a minute. You ignore the signs, so you enable. You don't want to alienate your child, so you enable. But if you think they're trying drugs, you shouldn't be afraid. You're the parent. So you are able. And we can help. So you are able. Get help at drugfree.org. Partnership for a Drug-Free America Texas Alliance. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. Thanks so much for tuning in. We have on the line, I believe, with us tonight, the Honorable Robert Henneke. Hello, sir. Hello, how are you? Very well. I'm so glad to have you on. I mentioned briefly before our break that Rob Henneke is the general counsel and director of the Center for the American Future at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And part of what they've been looking at is the climate deal that the president, uh, or actually it was John Kerry, I guess, but that 175 nations, I believe it was, signed on to this past Friday at the UN. This was the deal hammered out in Paris, and it's the big climate deal. And I want to start with, you know, I think President Obama, he has announced he's not going to run this deal, this commitment by the Senate. Um, isn't Doesn't this fall in the category of a treaty that really the Senate should get to review and either approve or not? 
Well, it is. The, the administration is trying to have it both ways. You know, they, they're presenting this as a binding agreement upon the United States. But under the terms of the Constitution, international agreements, they're called treaties. And the Constitution requires the president to get treaties ratified by the United States Senate in order for them to have legal binding effect upon the country. He's not doing that because he knows he doesn't have the votes. And so at the end of the day, then, this just makes this Paris deal uh, nothing more than, than a handshake from President Obama uh, that's going to expire at the same time as he leaves the Oval Office in January of next year. Well, that's exactly the concern, though, is I think that people, I mean, I think President Obama is going to act as though and speak and try to have the agencies he controls act as though this is a binding deal. But I'm really glad you're saying that because the Senate has not and will not be given the opportunity to vote up or down. This is just a suggestion by the president, right? Well, it is. And it's it's what's concerning about the way that this administration has completely thrown the rule of law out of the window and ripped out of the Constitution the whole concept of separation of powers and checks and balances. You know, it it came out here just recently that this Paris deal is illegal for the United States to be a signatory to because of the uh, UNFCC's recognition of uh, the, the state of Palestine as a member state in this agreement. Uh, there's, there's federal law on point that prohibits the United States from being a signatory to such a UN-affiliated organization and for sending any money to funding such an organization. That's why you had 27 senators last week sign on to a letter pointing this out to the administration. So, here you have the executive branch barreling forward and expending unappropriated taxpayer funds and ordering that federal agencies take actions to, you know, comply with President Obama's handshake when he doesn't have the legal authority to do so. And there's, there's no backing by the government as is supposed to happen under the Constitution. Wow, I had not read that particular point that even if the Senate were to address it, they wouldn't ratify just on that narrow point that you would think they would say they would call attention to that. But I also want to ask, so, you know, for our listeners, everybody loves nature and they want the earth to be they want us to be good stewards of the earth. But we also have recognized in recent years the need to look at what is it the extremists or the environmentalists are saying this deal would do and what would it really do. And But even more narrowly, I'm sorry, I'm, I have a lot I want to get in, in this short 11 minutes. I guess I want to get to what would happen in America, what would be the negative consequence to America if the Congress and everyone in America went along with this and treated it as a treaty? How bad is the deal for America? Well, the deal, the deal is conditioned upon the United States reducing the amount of carbon dioxide uh, emissions that uh, are collectively produced. And this climate handshake ties into the clean power plan that the administration has been pushing forward that was recently stayed by the U.S. Supreme Court. But the clean power plan is the mechanism with which this administration is trying to, to comply with it, uh, you know, what Obama has agreed to do as far as reducing 
CO2 emissions in the United States. And under the, the Clean Power Plan, you're looking at forcing the closure of fossil fueled uh, electricity generating units, coal power plants, natural gas power plants. And the result of that is going to increase the cost of electricity for every American, uh, which is going, in some places, it's estimated that electricity will be 40% more expensive than what it is now. And so the immediate impact is that there's 700,000 Americans who base their living on the coal industry that are going to lose their jobs. You've got companies that are already declaring bankruptcy because of this war on uh, coal generation. Even though coal companies and coal power plants have gotten very, very clean and efficient in the way they generate electricity, you have the prediction that the clean power plant is going to increase poverty rates among Hispanics and African Americans by 20-something percent uh, because of the increase in electricity rates and how this, you know, environmental left climate agenda is really going to hurt the poor and those on fixed uh, incomes like senior citizens. And at the end of the the day, it's not going to actually do anything because even under the EPA's own projections, if Obama's clean power plan got put into place exactly to the period how he has proposed it, it would only impact less than one one one-hundredth of a degree of worldwide temperature over the next 90 years. I have to jump in and ask, are you saying that if the deal that was struck in Paris and just signed on Friday at the UN by 175 nations, even if every country complied with the terms of it, it still would only, uh, you have to say the numbers again because I didn't write it down, but would still essentially not have any impact on global temperatures? It, it's projected... America, the, the part that Amer- that Obama has tried to commit on behalf of America. Okay. If, if, if America implements that, it is not going to have any uh, meaningful impact on worldwide temperatures. In fact, the EPA admits this as such. The EPA says, well, but it's still a symbol for the world, even though <laughs> there's no substantial benefit for all the pain that this clean power plan is going to cause on the United States. But the data, the goal of this, this Paris climate deal is to keep uh, worldwide temperatures from increasing more than two degrees Celsius. But even if every single country does everything that they're supposed to do, which, which I think is highly unlikely, then the best case scenario is that this climate deal you know, takes the increase in worldwide temperatures to from 4, 4.6 degrees, if nothing happens, to 2.7 degrees under this climate deal. So it even fails their own goals as far as what they're saying the goal is as opposed to what the, the science and data uh, say will, will happen. Wow. I have to tell you, there's an expression you used, and actually in preparing for this uh, conversation today, I read quite a bit about this. There's an expression I think that would be really wise for those who are concerned about the climate deal to start to use, and that is this expression, green energy poverty, helping people see that the climate change deal that, you know, whether 
even if well-intentioned, it will actually hurt at the, for the most part, it will hurt the poorest Americans who will have a great increase in the cost of their energy to heat their homes, to keep their lights on at home, to, for all the things they need. It'll cause harm to the least among us. That's supposed to be who the left cares about the most. But it's sounding like what they're willing to sign on to is really going to hurt Americans. And I, I think that's just a fabulous point against this whole deal. You know, two things to say in that. You're exactly right about where this is really going to impact. The Pern Dallas Electric Rural Electric Co-op is a rural electric cooperative here in Texas. It's the largest rural electricity provider uh, across the nation. They've crunched the numbers and have determined that the clean power plant is going to increase electricity rates and costs for their customers by 40%. In fact, I think it's 44%. Think about that. Think about your electricity bill that you get every single month. Now, add another 50% or 44% on that. You know, for some customers, especially here in Texas, where we have very extreme temperatures during the summer, you're talking about, you know, $100, $200 extra per month that these customers are going to have to pay. But, you know, I'll also say in, in Germany... In the EU, where some of the. You know, Rob, I'm sorry, we're getting very close to a break. We're talking to Rob Henneke of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, who's given us a lot of reasons to have great pause about this energy deal, including it is not being run by the Senate. It's constitutionally required to do. It's going to drive up energy costs at the end of the day. It's not going to reduce temperatures in any significant way. Rob, I'm sorry, we're up against a break. Thank you so much for calling in. Hi, this is Debbie Georgiatis. Every week on my show, Ladies Can We Talk, two women join me in our second hour roundtable to talk about the issues and events of the day. They are part of a small group called the Leading Ladies. Each leading lady is a leader in some way in her life, but we're not supermodels who read teleprompters for cable TV stations. We are wives and moms with families and lots of responsibilities, but we've all become deeply concerned about America's direction and are earnest students of today's political world. We love our country and our liberty. We want to inspire more people to join the cause of speaking up for America. We hope you'll join us every week. We try to sort out the political doublespeak and get to the heart of the issues to make connections between today's issues and events and the preservation of America's unique greatness and exceptional place in the world. We always talk truth about America. Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addison. So happy you've tuned in. You know, we have a new clock on this show and uh, I don't have my floating breaks anymore. So I'm trying to be sure I give our guests sufficient time. I'm really appreciate having uh, Robert Henneke of the Texas Public Policy Foundation on the last segment. He's a great guy. We'll have him on again. But now we have on the line uh, just a very... Uh, Wonderful uh, leader in Texas, one of the most respected conservative figures in Texas, Attorney General Ken Paxton. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Just great. It's great to have you. Well, I'm learning how short my segments are now, so I just want to jump right in. We're speaking to Attorney General Ken Paxton. So, General Paxton, you were up in Washington in front of the Supreme Court recently talking about the case involving the uh, President Obama's, uh, one of his executive orders, his executive amnesty order, um, which conservatives refer to it, 
Uh, and, and you're talking about uh, whether or not it was, the case was about whether or not the president had the authority to issue that executive order. So can you just go ahead and tell our listeners quickly what the case was about? Yeah. So basically for about six years from the time the president was running for office to August of 2014, the president said over 20 times that he did not have the authority to change immigration law because he was getting a lot of pressure to do that. And he made statements like, this is a democracy, Congress has to do this, I'm not a king, I'm not an emperor, I can't wave my magic wand. And then, in November of 2014, he issued an executive order which made 4 million people that were here unlawfully under statute, he made them lawful, and and his words were, I just changed the law. And so Texas sued, and 25 other states joined us, which is remarkable, And we sued basically saying the president doesn't have the statutory authority or the constitutional authority to make up law. This is all up to Congress. Congress has to pass the statute to change the law, and they didn't do that. I like that. And actually, I will tell for our listeners, you know, it's an interesting time before the Supreme Court because there are only eight justices um, after the recent um, very sad passing of Justice Scalia. So it's an interesting time to be in front of the court. And the lower court, if I have it correctly, General Paxson, the, the, a federal judge ruled in Texas's favor, and then the Fifth Circuit, the Federal Appeals Court, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, also ruled in Texas' favor. So, so far, the courts are agreeing with you that the president lacked the authority to issue this executive order, right? That's correct. So far, we've won at the district court in the Southern District of Texas, and we won on, on a, through a procedural issue. And then at the Fifth Circuit, we actually won on the procedural issue, and we won on the statutory claim that the president didn't have the authority. And then at the Supreme Court, they were also addressing the constitutional claim. So at every level, it's actually gotten better, and they've considered more of our our actual claims. I love that. And I think this is such an important case. And, you know, I want to be sure for our listeners to this isn't this is a little bit less about immigration. I mean, it does. Of course, the immigration issue matters and the substance of the president's executive order matters. But the case, the importance of the case is a little less about immigration and more about defining or constraining presidential power. At least that's how I see it. What do you think? No, that's absolutely right. The the you know, obviously this is about, there is some immigration policy in this, but fundamentally this is a, this is a question of whether the president's going forward have the authority to look at a statute and say, I don't like that statute. I know that I'm supposed to go through Congress, but I can't get it through Congress, and so I'm just going to change the law. And if he gets away with this, then what would stop another president if we had, a, had somebody that decided they didn't want people that have the ability to have, uh, you know, their Second Amendment. They just go in and change some rule, and it doesn't have to go through Congress. And it really makes Congress irrelevant and puts more and more power in the executive branch and in the agencies. You know, I love that argument. I've said that many times on this show about the idea that even if you are a strong advocate for loosening immigration policy or for giving amnesty to everyone, no matter how they got here, you still should be on the side of Texas in this case because it really has such broad impact uh, and potential impact on America's future. As you say, a president could come along, a very conservative president, issue an order that a liberal would find really unacceptable. Um, but so it's kind of it's the rule of law above the policy beneath it. Well, yeah, and I think so many people get caught up in, well, I like the policy, and so I think Texas is wrong, and we're going to support this from being done. But, you know, 
down the road, we could have presidents that people don't disagree with on anything. It could be something really awful for all of us. And if we perverted our Constitution to not mean that the president is limited to enforcing the laws, not making them, then we could potentially set up precedent for future presidents to do some really, really bad things that then these people who agree with the immigration policy would find themselves in a very bad situation, having changed the way we look at the Constitution and then ending up with a president that has absolute power. Absolutely. Okay, I do want to change the subject a minute about about the um, being up in the Supreme Court for this argument. Um, I mentioned to our listeners before, I went to law school in Washington, and I was fairly nerdy, and I loved to go listen to the Supreme Court arguments. It used to be much easier to get in um, back in the olden days uh, and listen, and I just really, I think it's just so interesting. It's such a, there's such majesty to the court itself and to the idea of what's happening there. So, but so I'm curious, being in front of the Supreme Court, first of all, did, were the justices really active or did, did um, I guess I'm going to, any of the justices really seem particularly interested in the case and, or were all of them asking questions? Well, um, your listeners may not know, but um, Clarence Thomas typically didn't ask questions, and he did not ask any questions. Um, he he is known for being very, very smart and reading all the briefs. Yep. Typically doesn't ask questions. All the rest of the judges were pretty engaged. Um, we got questions from what you might call the liberal judges and the more conservative judges. And I actually thought it was really interesting because the, there were two key statements made. One was my Justice Roberts, who... One of the things they were challenging Texas on was whether we had standing to bring our case, whether we could show some harm. And the and the he told the Solicitor General from the United States, who was arguing that we did not have standing, he said, look, losing money, which is what we claim through our loss of having to spend all this money on new driver's licenses, losing money is a classic case for standing. That was a statement by the, by the uh, Chief Justice. And then Justice Kennedy, on the actual merits of the case, made the argument to the Solicitor General of the United States, again, saying something like, look, it, this seems upside down to me. Normally, Congress passes a law, the president implements it. In this case, the president changed the policy, and Congress is supposedly acquiescing in it by funding it, so it seems upside down. Those were statements, and those are, those are statements that are favorable to us. Oh, those are great statements. I love hearing that. I love hearing that. And actually, you know, just again, because it's such an unusual time with only eight justices. So what happens if they split four to four, uh, you know, uh, because they can't come to a majority decision in this case? Well, so we're actually hopeful that we'll get more than four because, as you noted earlier, this is a bigger deal than just immigration policy. But even if we don't, if it's four-four, because we were successful in the Fifth Circuit, we would be we would win on on that basis. Now, while we're all we're fighting over here is a preliminary injunction to stop the implementation of this program from going into effect until we actually have the trial on the merits. But it is a good sign because a preliminary injunction means that the court has said that they think that we're likely to win on the merits. Exactly. And I was going to wondering how much uh, I could get in the preliminary injunction part, which I actually and our I mentioned to our listeners, we, we have a new clock and I seem to get I have to be very careful when I get cut off. But it is true, even if the court went four four and so they are just affirming the fifth court's decision and so it goes back to the trial court, wouldn't the trial and the preliminary injunction last? I mean, wouldn't it last into where we're going to have a new president? Uh, I, I would suggest that that's very likely. I, I also would suggest that you know, if the courts rule in our favor on the preliminary injunction, that 
the administration is going to have a big hill to climb winning the case in the end because, again, that means the judge has already said they're likely to win on the merits. Now, maybe there'll be something new, but I doubt it. I, I think we've got a really good chance of winning this case if we win at the Supreme Court. I love that. I love it. And I was going to tell our listeners we're speaking with Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, a good friend of this show, a good friend of conservatives in Texas. And I will put up on our, our Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page an article that was written by General Paxton called Supreme Court Must Rebuke Obama's Self-Coronation. Uh, by the Texas AG. It's a great column, and it kind of summarizes everything we uh, were saying tonight. General Paxton, thank you so much for calling in. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, and thank you for fighting for Texas. I just so appreciate that. You know, um, these, uh, this case, we were, as you were hearing General Paxton say a moment ago, it really is about the power of what the Constitution says about the separation of powers. The idea we don't have a tyrant, we don't have a king, we spread power out on the federal level by having a Congress make the laws, a president execute them, and the judiciary rule on them. And why so many conservatives and, frankly, some liberals have been very upset by this president is because he has usurped, taken out of the hands of Congress so many issues and put them into his own hands, writing executive orders, issuing orders, and he's essentially taking the role of Congress into his own hands. And that's exactly what our founders tried to prevent in the creation of this country. And the show, we talk so often about the idea that we speak up about America, we speak truth about America. America. Well, this is one of those truths. If we don't hold on to separation of powers, everyone suffers. So that's our uh, General Paxton. Again, thank you so much for having him on tonight and come back after the break. And we're going to tell you some really big news going on in America um, about the Virginia governor and felons getting to vote. Today, nearly half our nation's fighting forces are members of the Guard and Reserve. When they are called to active duty, they leave behind a family, a community, and a job. Employer support of the Guard and Reserve, a Department of Defense agency, honors and protects the bond between service members and their civilian employers. Whether serving our country or supporting those who do, we all serve. To learn more about ESGR, call 1-800-336-4590 or visit esgr.mil. Can you hear us now? Can you hear and welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk? You know, the uh, this last just before our last break, we were speaking with Texas State Attorney General Ken Paxton, and I didn't really have sufficient time to introduce him and um, really tell you about his accomplishments. I'm so glad he could come on the show this evening. I just really want to commend him for his just forthright, consistent, unwavering commitment to defending Texas. And you know, what he's talking about in this case in front of the Supreme Court this past week, it's not really as it is about immigration and is about whether, you know, certain people who have no current legal status can be given legal status by the president's executive order, but it really has a profound uh, consequence for America's future. And I think that his uh, willingness, he's just been out there talking about it um, all over the media, trying to make this case. He's kind of, he's one of the modern day patriots, and as are many other attorneys general in other conservative states, trying to say, 
to hold on to this precious, unique freedom we have in America and a limited government, we have to stand up and challenge when we see the president. Uh, and this isn't just this isn't the first time for President Obama. This has been an ongoing problem in the course of his seven plus years of presidency of just simply issuing executive orders, whether it's under Obamacare or related to immigration, where he just decides he's tired of waiting for the people who the voters chose to represent them, the members of the Congress and Senate, to do the policy he wants. And so he just pushes it forward. And this is a it's one of those things you look back in history at this time in America, and we will say, thank goodness, people started to speak up so we don't slide into uh, more tyranny, less representational government. Well, I meant to say at the start of our show, um, two things. I want to quick say them now. One is I really want to, wanted to say um, happy Passover. I hope every one of all of our listeners and supporters who celebrate Passover had a wonderful Passover with their families. Um, it's a very, very important holiday for the, our Jewish friends and neighbors. And I also want to welcome the women who are members of the Muskogee-Harris County Republican Women's Club in Columbus, Georgia. This show is now aired in Columbus, Georgia, live. And um, I believe that some of those ladies are listening tonight. So welcome to Ladies Can We Talk. We always talk truth about America. We talk about all the issues facing America. And the hardest problem I have every single week preparing for this show is deciding which particular issues to talk about and so um but tonight i want to focus on uh, the earth day things we talked about in the first segment and and the earth day thing you know the reason i brought up this i talked about earth day and and then we talked next about we talked with robert um, henneke of the texas public policy foundation about the paris climate deal is that we get american citizens get drawn in to hysteria and fear created by the left and we don't want to be the one saying you know we don't want to be irresponsible we don't be the one saying oh don't worry about it so we get worked up into fear and then people go along with all sorts of things they wouldn't otherwise go along with and the left has managed especially with respect to the environment to create fear in this country and i want to in my in my book ladies can we talk I talked about, I had just, I mean, a chapter dedicated to energy and and the environment. And among the things I talked about in there is that of all of the CO2, we mentioned this earlier with Robert Henneke, of all the CO2 there is in the environment, a tiny percent, a tiny percent, I mean, I'm sorry, of all the atmospheric things there are, the elements, only a tiny percent, way under 1% is CO2. But another really, really important fact to keep in mind 95% or over 95% of the CO2 in the environment, in fact, others will say, other experts say over 97%, is natural. Meaning it would be here even if your car wasn't. So what these environmentalists are trying to do is get people agitated about the minute proportion of CO2 added to the environment by human activity, by the burning of fossil fuels, and get you to the point where you're willing to create, you know, you're willing to denounce fossil fuels, you're willing to make them unavailable to people, make them more expensive, you're willing to drive up energy costs, you're willing to have a new category of poverty, green energy poverty, hurting the poorest of Americans by making energy more expensive, all for a policy that even the EPA and every other expert will tell you will barely impact average climate temperatures. 
It's absurd. But it's an example of how the left gets us so drawn into some hysteria and fear, we kind of forget well, what it is we were going to be that, that really matters. We get drawn into to, um, fear-inducing things. And Earth Day is a great time to talk about it. Well, I said before the break, I want to tell you in this last segment, I quite often do what I call a cruise through the news. I just want to hit a couple of stories quickly that we don't have to spend a lot of time on, but I think they're interesting. The governor of Virginia, the Democrat governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, this past Friday, the same day as Earth Day, um, issued an order restoring voting rights to over 200,000 convicted felons in Virginia. This is a really interesting story. I, I think there's actually a lot that politicians could debate about this subject, but you know, the basic thing is for many years, if you have been convicted of a felony, even if you had served your time and you were out, you, you lost permanently the right to vote. And so what Governor McAuliffe did on this past Friday is essentially say in Virginia, because every state makes their own laws on this subject, in Virginia, if you're a convicted felon and you've completed your sentence, I mean, there are, there are virtually no um, conditions. You have you finished your sentence, you've completed parole, um, that you have you your parole or probation period, you are entitled to vote. And what's just an interesting little point I'd like to make is that everybody is looking at this and saying, oh, no, more Democrat voters. And that's exactly why Governor McAuliffe did this, because we're coming up an incredibly important presidential election. Virginia is a swing state. It's very unclear which way Virginia will go. So he's essentially just authorized 200,000. And sadly, most people will just say, well, yeah, they're Democrat voters. And so stop and think what that represents. See what you th- What do you think about that? Why is it a, a Extending the right to vote to felons means everyone says, oh, it's a bunch of Democrats. And the Republican-controlled legislature is fuming about it, saying, wait a minute. Now, you know, this is, I, I think that um, i don't not aware of any actual challenge to Governor McAuliffe. I don't know if the legislature in Virginia is going to challenge him on it. But they're saying, you know, this was kind of a big policy decision. Sure seems like maybe you might have included us uh, in this policy discussion, but, you know, they didn't. And so um, we are at that point now where Virginia, and actually I, I was surprised when I read it, over the years more and more states have extended voting rights to um, felons. And, in fact, now there are only 12 remaining states who completely prohibit convicted felons from voting. And I think it's some, you know, I, I can actually see both sides of the argument. I can see the idea if you served your time and you straighten out your life. But I think it's just a, the timing of this is very, um, very suspect, very political, very partisan, and um, does not speak well of, um, it, it's just, what do you think about the idea that this, everyone jumps to conclusion, well, it's a bunch of new Democrat voters. Okay. I want to, I only have a few minutes left in this segment and I, I kind of want to hit a really big point that I, it, and this is in my cruise through the news segment, something I think is just important to think about in America. In this presidential cycle, we've had a lot of talk about the idea of nationalism and how there's a, a resurging nationalism in America. People love America. They want to hear America defended. But nationalism without an ideology attached to it is tribalism. Just simply love America without saying what you stand for about America. What is it about America that's great? What are you trying to protect about America? That's why in the show we talk a lot about what conservatism means because what that really means is you embrace ideas like what the Declaration of Independence says, what the Constitution says. And this frothing fervor for nationalism 
has to be balanced with or infused with an embrace of what are the ideas? What is the America you're defending in your nationalistic argument? Because I do think it's right that on the American left, we have a lot of globalist type thinking. We have President Obama, a lot of the lefties are all, they, they kind of want to diminish America's role in the world. They want to keep telling people that America doesn't have a role to play in leading the world, either in terms of military strength or economic strength or any other way. President Obama has been very dedicated for seven years to diminishing America's role in the world and place in the world and also to surrendering a governance more and more in within America to more of the UN, trying to defer to the UN, take away sovereignty of America. So if there's a right reaction to that on the conservative side that says, no, no, we, we're going to be a sovereign, unique country. We are not going to become, we're not going to succumb to United Nations control. We're not going to succumb to some kind of world order stuff. We're going to stand up for America. But nationalism all by itself, without saying what it is you stand for about America, is tribalism. It's what we fought against when we formed America. We formed America on ideas, and this is what is missing from a lot of the discussion in this political season is what does it mean to say you stand up for America? What's it mean to say you want America to be great? What's it mean to say America needs to restore her place in the world? If you don't have ideas and ideals behind that, then you're just talking about and that word tribalism it's like what we say we didn't like when we, we thought we had made a better country when our forebears came to America and they, they didn't instead. And instead of joining with one tribe or another, they said, you know, we're, we're not about tribes, we're not about ethnicity, we're not about race, we're not about religion. We're about the creation of a country uniquely founded on these precious ideas that are in the Declaration of Independence. Ideas like we have rights from God simply because we were born that we're all equal under our creator, that simply because we're born, we have the right to pursue and our dreams, to have a life, liberty, pursue our version of happiness, all the structure of the federal government and the state government, what the constitution created, that's what America is. That's what makes America unique and great. It's not the geography, it's not the particular dirt we happen to have our country on. It's not the lines around our country. It's not the race, ethnicity, or color of skin. It's about ideas. And nationalism needs to have the ideas attached to say why America is so great. Okay, we're almost up to our break. Coming up the second hour, we're going to talk to the lawyer who's brought the lawsuit against the state of Georgia on the subject of their firing of a doctor for statements he made in a sermon outside of work. Talk to you after the top of the hour. Some on the American left claim they are standing up for women when they are really just selling failed liberal ideas. They do this because once they claim the pro-women banner, they can attack people who disagree with their political opinions as anti-women. 
The truth is, American women have formed countless new conservative political organizations. Here are a few. Ladies Can We Talk, Independent Women's Forum, Chicks on the Right, Smart Girl Politics, Claire Booth Loose Society, Politichicks, Susan B. Anthony List, Kitchen Cabinet, Voices of Conservative Women, Concerned Women of America, Eagle Forum. Millions of American women embrace conservative ideas because those ideas actually make life better for women. This is Debbie Georgiatis. Keep tuning in to Ladies Can We Talk every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. on 660 a.m. The Answer. We talk truth about America and about how the issues impact all Americans, including women. for our second hour roundtable on Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And welcome to our second hour. This is Debbie Georgiatis. Thank you so very much for tuning in. And I forgot to do my proper introduction of the leading ladies. I had a great uh, introduction written out and I didn't do it. But in our second hour, I'm joined in a roundtable by two leading ladies. This week, I have Jenny McGarry and Carrie Kellerman here. So my really short introduction, because we have Chelsea on the line, is we have these ladies on every week because we love talking truth. And we love going back and forth and talking about all the issues facing America. We have a guest with us tonight, and she's Chelsea Yeoman, and she's Chief of Staff and Counsel of First Liberty, formerly called Liberty Institute. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, Debbie. Thank you so much for having me tonight. I'm so glad you're with us. And I will tell our listeners, Chelsea and I have also, I do a different radio show sometimes during the week. And I've been on this show with Chelsea, which is where I met her. And she's a young and just really dynamic lawyer. And she is working for First Liberty. And the case, this is, Chelsea, I think I mentioned to you in an email. This is a very short segment. It kind of ends before it starts almost. And so I just want to give you a chance to tell what is this case all about involving in Georgia, involving this doctor, Eric Walsh, that First Liberty is not representing him? Yes, yes. This is definitely a case we want the nation to know about. It's something that can't go um, unspoken about. We have a doctor named Dr. Eric Walsh. He was hired by the state of Georgia to be one of their district health directors. Um, he's a renowned physician in the country, had previously served two presidential administrations, um, on their presidential advisory councils for HIV and AIDS. So he's, he just has um, a lot of accolades on his resume. Uh, but after the state of Georgia hired him, Georgia officials um, asked him to submit sermons. He is a lay minister, used to be a lay minister um, for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He submitted the sermons to the state of Georgia, and they went through, they divvied up his sermons, we have emails of this, assigned different sermons to be covered by different employees of the state, and they went line by line through his sermons, didn't like what they heard, um, and then proceeded to call him within 24 hours and fire him in a voicemail. Wow. Okay, so this, be very clear for our listeners, these sermons, his work for his church had nothing to do with his job with the state of Georgia, right? No, absolutely. It wasn't even, it was actually out of California was where he was preaching. So he wasn't even in the state of Georgia um, at the time the sermons were preached. It was definitely something he did as a lay, a lay pastor on the side. And 
obviously it's a Title VII religious discrimination violation for um, anyone to be fired for something they do on, on the weekend or regarding their faith outside of work hours. Hi, Chelsea. This is Carrie. I wanted to ask quickly. Um, w- did Eric have a chance to say, when they asked for a sermon, to say, no thanks? Um, yes, he, he could have said no, but he thought, you know, that this was going to be part of learning about him and, and what all he was about. They had done, for obviously working for the state, significant background checks, looked into some of his volunteer work. And so I think he thought that this had, you know, something to do with, with his background check. Wow. I want to, without going to a lot of depth on his sermons, but is the main thing that you understand to be what the state of Georgia didn't like in his sermons relate to his views on marriage and traditional marriage? Yes, that's what we, we perceive to be the issue. Um, he spoke on a number a number of things, creationism, um, you know, just views on, on the Sabbath, uh, pop culture. He referenced Jay-Z um, and things of that nature. But the, the thing that we feel that they predominantly... Um, we found on the voicemail afterwards that they, were, they had issue with were his views on marriage, which, as we know, many, many faiths have views on and, tradi- and uh, beliefs regarding human sexuality. It's not uncommon. Oh, my gosh. Yes. In fact, yeah. you know, this is part of what we'll probably be talking tonight uh, and the next segment after our break, too, is about how there's been such pressure within our culture that, I mean, I just think this, if you ask our listeners and you step back for a second, this is a state, a state government thinking that everybody knows this is the wrong answer. You're not allowed to say that about about marriage. And yet I would say probably the majority of Americans still think that's what marriage is. But somehow it is it has become a forbidden thing to even say. Absolutely. And we've we found a lot of our clients actually have been fired for similar things like this. I think employers are so scared um, of kind of the corporate bullying that we've seen nationally in the, in the limelight right now. They're so afraid of that that they're erring on the other side and actually violating religious discrimination statutes, which are explicitly written down. Um, but again, we, we've seen this before. We, we have models of other countries who have gone the route we're now going, legalizing same-sex marriage. Um, ultimately, in England, Australia, and Canada, we have seen major, major free speech implications um, and consequences from that. And it kind of is a natural segue to once, once a behavior and a, a belief is deemed to be wrong, then the speech that flows from that is also attacked. Wow, we have one second, one minute here before our break. Carrie had another quick thing. Yeah, I just wanted to know, um, what in what way did they think his views outside of work would affect his work? You, you know, that's unclear to us. Obviously, we think illegal discrimination, they, they probably don't care that it affected his work. They were um, determined to, to fire him based on his beliefs. And he's actually worked on, as I said, the advisory committee for the president on HIV and AIDS. So it's really unclear. He has no history whatsoever that that would have been affected. We're speaking tonight, and we're going to ask her to hold on during the break to Chelsea Yeoman, who is the Chief of Staff and Counsel of First Liberty, formerly called Liberty Institute in Dallas, about the case in Georgia involving Dr. Eric Walsh. And also we're going to expand and talk about a recent federal court decision that said high schools must let anyone use any restroom they want. Right after the break, we'll continue talking with Chelsea Yeoman. We're asking folks about marriage. Marriage makes me think of sports. You know, teamwork, dedication. Okay, let's see what people say. 
Let's say your marriage is a sport. What sport would it be? Basketball. Surfing. There have to be a team sport. A lot of back and forth. A lot of people watching. So how many people are influenced by your marriage? Hundreds. You really think about the ripple effect. It's like a wave. <laughs> Want to improve your marriage? For ideas, go to foryourmarriage.org and message from the Catholic Church. Can you Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. I am joined this evening by my leading lady buddies, Carrie Kellerman and Jenny McGarry. And we have on the line a, an attorney and just a brilliant young woman, Chelsea Yeoman. She is the Chief of Staff and Counsel of First Liberty uh, based here in Dallas, Texas, and she, which was also called previously called uh, Liberty Institute. And we're talking about a case in Georgia in which the state of Georgia fired a doctor who was a uh, employee of the state who's extremely accomplished man and they fired him over the content of sermons he gave in his church not related to his work in any way but in his sermons he spoke about his support for traditional marriage and other con- conservative issues and the state of georgia openly and they admit that's why they fired him so jenny had a thought here yeah chelsea i just was wondering does the state of georgia have civil service protection um, you know, they do, and, and we actually filed this, though, in the in the federal court system, and so we, we have the Office of Civil Rights weighing in on this um, and are definitely pursuing the Title VII route for this, which is religious discrimination forbidden um, in an employment setting. But with civil service, they wouldn't ha- would normally have to follow some kind of progressive discipline before they could actually fire him, and he can also appeal to uh, the civil service council that they usually have. Uh, I mean, is that another avenue that, that could be taken as far as this is concerned? Right. So how these, these lawsuits typically work is you, you file the complaint with the state and then also with the EEOC, and then they'll do their own internal investigation and issue a right to sue letter, which is essentially your green light to go ahead and, and file the case. And sometimes they just issue the letter, and I can't get into too many details in this case, but sometimes they'll weigh in on, on their views of what happened. But this, this, the state of Georgia actually just um, is holding out saying that uh, they fired him for other reasons and, and things like that. But we, we have the actual video footage or audio footage, I should say, um, of them laughing about why they fired him. Ugh, oh, my crazy. gosh. That's it's crazy. terrible. And I'm sure the governor terrible. has not responded to this. I, I believe he's a Democrat also. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know what he is anymore. Let's just say that. He's an unknown. Yeah. Well, you know, I just love the idea that in this country, we have federal laws that Chelsea mentioned a moment ago, Title Seven being among them, that are designed to protect people against legitimate claims of uh, discrimination. They're, they're tied to give, they give a person who's actually a victim of discrimination a way to remedy it through the courts, a way to go through the courts and argue it. In Title VII, in my other uh, life, before I did a radio hosting, I was a lawyer and I actually represented employers um, in California and definitely had federal court litigation under Title VII. So this is a, um, it's a v- powerful law present for those who really need it. And this seems like such a black and white case of discrimination. I just find it, I, I'm just kind of, I find it mind-boggling that Georgia is not trying to, weasel its way out because it just seems so egregious and actually this doctor i know you mentioned chelsea how accomplished he was but i was is i was reading about this is dr eric walsh Mm -hmm. he actually is director of pasadena public health department he secured millions of dollars in grants 
to start an innovative, low-cost dental clinic for HIV-positive patients, mm-hmm. low-income adults, and senior citizens. I mean, the guy's a do-gooder, honestly, yes. you know? Yes, and the, and the most ironic part of all is that it's all driven by his faith. Um, I mean, I think his desire and passion to serve the poor and the sick in California right now and then was going to be in Georgia is driven and because of his beliefs. It's amazing. Yep. Thank you. Um, Chelsea, I wondered is it, on the other side of this, is there anything somebody can say under the umbrella of faith that would send up red flags that would be something that somebody could legitimately be uh, fired for? Um, no, that, that shouldn't actually be the case. So religious discrimination or any Title VII discrimination, which would be racial discrimination, um, discrimination on the basis of sex, all of those are prohibited 100%, and that could include anything from being dis- disciplined by your employer to admonished by your employer or harassed by your employer to here we see worst-case scenario actually terminated. Um, the only context I could think of where your religious beliefs, you're allowed to pray in your employment environment, um, you're allowed to put up Bible verses at, at your desk. You're allowed to talk about it. Um, would be if it interfered with your actual work in in a real sense. So if you were on air um, and and said something that you weren't supposed to, that that would be taken as being spoken of on your employer's behalf, that maybe could get you in trouble. But the point of this entire case is that you can't be fired for your religious beliefs. It's it's just not legal. And, you know, I have to say, we were, I want to switch over and have time to talk about this case. I mentioned to you, I think, Chelsea, in an email before we got on, I this case that actually has come out of the Fourth Circuit involving high schools and the assignment of bathrooms. I, I do want to get to that because I'm yes, curious ma'am. about your, your read on that. Did you just call me ma'am? Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chelsea. I'm Southern. I've got those Southern values. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm Debbie. We have Carrie and Jenny here. <laughs> no. But um, back to this uh, Dr. Walsh case, I think that one of the underlying things, we talk on the show so much about preserving America and the goodness and greatness of America. Mm-hmm. Part of the idea of America is that we do actually embrace and support diversity of opinions and people are allowed to think different things you're not Mm. supposed to be punished because you don't hold the majority view or because you don't hold the left-wing view and so that's one thing that's wrong with the state of georgia's conduct they're kind of saying only one view is allowed but i think it's even more troublesome that the one view that is allowed apparently is Mm -hmm. that you must embrace marriage uh as, as defined by the modern um uh, LGBT community instead of marriage as defined by your religion, by many people's faith, the Jewish mm-hmm. faith, Christian faith, many faiths define marriage as a man and a woman. But that's a view apparently is not okay with Georgia. I just had to add that commentary. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on that, but I want to turn to ask you about this. Did you want to respond to that, Chelsea? Um, I just would say I completely agree that we're definitely at a tipping point in our nation where millions and millions who hold traditional views of marriage, um, we get to decide who, who we're going to respect as a country if there's allowed to even be a, a dialogue anymore. Uh, yes, it's very troublesome. Okay, I do want to get your opinion because you're practicing law. I, I don't practice law anymore. I, I got a better job as a full-time mom after that, and now I'm a radio host. <laughs> but there's a case right now. It's out of the Fourth Circuit. So it's a federal appeals court under Title IX. Title IX is essentially a law that Congress passed years ago saying colleges had to essentially not discriminate between men and women. had to be fair. I'm going to just leave it at that summary. So this case involves a high school student who is a biological girl 
I mean, she mm-hmm. is a girl. She identifies as a boy, and she wants to force the school to. She tried to say to the school that she should be able to use the male locker room, men's locker room, and men's restrooms. They said to her, "You know, we'll, we'll provide you a neutral bathroom. We'll have mm-hmm. one for girls, one for boys, and a neutral one that you can use." And even that wasn't okay with her, so she filed suit. But why I'm blown away by and want to hear your reaction to is the federal court said essentially that she was right, that Title IX did not let the school meet her need by simply supplying her a neutral bathroom. Am I understanding the case correctly? Yes. Yes, you are. And I would I would have to point out that this is such an important case because it's the first case to come out of this high of a court um, that yep. rules this way. And it's a, it's very frankly, unfortunate precedent-setting case out of the Fourth Circuit. We were obviously floored by this because, um, and again, I'm a, I'm a First Amendment attorney, mostly freedom of religion and speech issues, but my understanding of Title IX is that there's specific exceptions allowed um, where people are or schools are allowed to um, delegate certain areas on the basis of sex, one of which is locker rooms, one of which is bathrooms. So there's already a, an explicit exemption, my understanding is, in yep. Title IX for the way schools implement Title IX. Um, and so to call, to essentially for the court to go explicitly against what Congress set out as an exemption and call the school um, discriminatory, which no doubt they did, uh, is a bit absurd, but definitely ag- against the explicit language of the statute. Exactly. And, you know, there was a dissent, as there always is. And again, to our listeners, I will put this a link to this case on the Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page. If you're listening tonight, go to Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page. We have lots of dialogue going on. And to the website, ladieskenwetalk.org. And we'll post the link to this. There was, as there often are in cases like this, a very stinging dissent. This one was written by Judge Paul Nehemiah, who essentially said, you got to be kidding me. I mean, if you had to summarize, he really came down very hard on the majority talking about things like, what about the privacy rights of the students, you know, who do not wish to change in front of somebody or shower in front of somebody? What about their rights? It seems that we exalted, exalted the transgender students' rights over everybody else's. Do you have a thought on that? We have a, actually a full minute left here. Chelsea, any thought on that? Well, well, yes, I completely agree. We do know that... Um Specifically in public bathrooms and, and bathrooms on campus is where a lot of actual sexual assault takes place. I think a high, high percentage of, of assaults take place in the bathroom when we know that we've had plenty of witnesses testify before Congress and, and who had that as an experience say that going to a public restaurant restroom at all is a traumatic experience for them anymore. And to say we are willfully choosing to put that a gender interest over a privacy safety interest, um, it's it, frankly, it's horrific. It is. Chelsea, quickly, you can tell us the website for First Liberty. Sure. We're firstliberty.org. You can look up all of our cases, including Dr. Walsh and more. Chelsea Yeoman, thank you so much for joining us. It's Debbie George and Ladies Kimmy Talk. Come on back and we're going to talk about Target. The path of big government based out of Washington or the unique brand of liberty and prosperity enjoyed here in Texas. For 27 years, the Texas Public Policy Foundation has helped leaders in the Lone Star State prove that fiscal restraint and small government can deliver opportunity and prosperity for all. The Texas Public Policy Foundation promotes and defends solutions here and around the country. 
based on liberty, free enterprise, and personal responsibility. Whether informing the national debate on property rights, energy, taxes, education, or criminal justice, the foundation works to translate ideas into real change. The Texas Public Policy Foundation does not accept government funds or contributions to influence the outcome of its research. It is supported by thousands of people like you who are concerned about the future of our country. You can help Texas remain strong as the beacon of liberty in America. Visit texaspolicy.com to learn more. Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. We're in our second hour roundtable with Carrie Kelman and Jenny McGarry. And we just had a great conversation before our break with Chelsea Yeoman. She is the Chief of Staff and Counsel at First Liberty, which is a um, it's a law firm. I don't know. I think it's a 501c3, but it's basically an organization that people can go to when they're the victims of religious discrimination. And, and they have come up with a fabulous formula that permits them to represent many, many victims of religious discrimination by partnering partnering with lawyers in the various cities where these cases come up and the lawyers are looking for pro bono work. And so they really have magnified their power to represent people in uh, cases all over the country by partnering with these law firms in the area and people who want to be involved. So great discussion is Dr. Eric Walsh. I urge you to Google his name if you don't know about this case. He's like this stand-up do-gooder guy uh, who's really been pummeled by the state of Georgia. So, okay, I want to turn on and talk about Target. And I have to tell you, um, if you haven't been paying attention to this case, I think that'd be amazing. But there's been a lot of discussion in America over this last year or two, really, is when the issue seems to have come to the forefront forefront about the idea of what do you do with people who say they are transgender, meaning they are biologically one sex, but they mentally or they believe they are the other sex. And so they don't want to use the restroom that matches their biology, that matches their anatomy. They want to use the other restroom. And so this has become such a big issue uh, as a big issue in North Carolina and other places around the country. And it's become a really kind of a cause celeb, you know, are you really in the cool insider, you know, intellectual left because you see the wisdom of letting people who are anatomically male use women's bathroom because after all they're transgender. So it's become a really controversial issue. So Target, a very popular store, um, lots of people shop there issued a statement kind of going along with North Carolina and saying essential or going along or recognizing the problem North Carolina is having because so many people are fighting North Carolina. I'm sorry, too many. Let me just go to Target. Target's deal was they issued a policy recently saying they are going to permit people to use the restroom of their choice, what they their gender identity is that day. So that's what they decided. They decided that they announced this policy. So the left celebrates and a lot of conservatives said, okay, that's it. You know, we're boycotting Target. Well, this boycott thing got going to the degree that, and this is something I didn't get a chance to tell you guys on the break, but the boycott thing got going to the point that it was reported yesterday that Target had reversed its policy and said, never mind, we didn't, you know, we were trying to be inclusive and diverse and honor all people. And turns out a lot of people are upset about this. What they're upset about, in case you don't know, people are not upset about a real transgender person 
um, you know, using a restroom, maybe they don't like it very much, but they're concerned about the potential for women, girls, of being the victims of sexual assault by a man who is permitted to use the women's restroom. What I didn't tell you, though, was, so this report came out yesterday saying that Target's changed our minds. We got such a pushback. So many people signed a petition that never mind, we're changing our policy. But someone just posted, someone we all know, someone just posted in the Facebook page, this may be a false report. Target may not have changed their mind. But anyway, whatever their current policy is, Jenny has some thoughts on this thing. All I know is that they better remember who their market share is. It's families out there that they are marketing to. And right now, this family is not happy with what they're putting out there. I am not sending my eight-year-old daughter into a restroom where she will be possibly harassed or hurt by a predator, nor will I send her into a dressing room, which that uh, the policy, as I understand it, extends not right. only to restrooms, but also changing rooms. I have a real issue with this and Target better remember who they are marketing to or they are going to lose that market. Because as of right now, until that policy changes, my family will not be shopping there. You and about, I saw that, I meant to check the number, how many people signed that petition. It was like 175,000. Quarter of a million. Quarter of a million. Okay, so, yeah. So, I think actually the very first 24 or 48 hours it got to the number I said, and now it's quarter of a million. So, people really responded. So, here's the question. So, suppose Target really does change their mind. Say, okay, never mind. We were wrong about that. You know, we shouldn't have said that men can use women's restrooms. So, should the boycott get dropped? Or should they keep on? What do you think people should, the conservatives should do in response to this? This should not even be tolerated. The, the idea that they're trying to be inclusive is really just trying to be cutting edge and cool. Well, guess what? Even though you have designers uh, giving lower cost uh, designs for fashion does not make you cutting edge and cool. You need to remember that you are marketing to families in America. And guess what? Most of us care about predators having access to our children. Mm-hmm. I'd say drop the boycott. Because I think money being withheld and money not being withheld can, you know, it's a two-way street. You want to reward people for good decisions and punish them for bad ones. And if they drop, if they drop the, the issue, then we should say, yay, we won that one and continue to shop and reward them for having changed their minds. Their I'm, good behavior. I'm, I'm disappointed that they went down this road in the first place. I think it's a, a solution in search of a problem, really. I mean, it's just... It, well, they're. <laughs> I, I, I really don't understand. When I go to a Target store, there's a men's, women's, and a family restroom. If they really had an issue, they could just relabel the family room and put private. It's yeah. got a sink. It's got a toilet. It's got a lock on the door. Exactly. Who cares who you are and what you do when you go in, but you're by yourself, so it shouldn't be an issue. Which gets to what I think is really the uh, kind of nub or the deeper issue in all this. I don't actually think... It's two issues. I don't actually think that the board of Target is made up of people who are deeply sympathetic to transgender Americans and are looking for a way to help them. I think Target issued their initial policy saying you can use the rest of your gender identity based on pressure from the LGBT community. It's the LGBT pressing their agenda and Target just goes, you know, I don't want to mess with them. I don't want to be like North Carolina that's getting uh, threats of boycott. So we just go ahead and surrender. I think that's one thing. But the deeper thing is, I don't think the people pushing this will ever be satisfied. Oh, I, I agree. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I, yeah. like, I, I totally agree. I mean, you have an, an entire organization that's trying to change how we value, how, how we look at what family is, how we look at 
what we're born with or what we're not. It's not that we're not trying to be inclusive is that we're trying to treasure the values that we already have. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to tell us that there is something wrong with that. And we have to change what we believe in order to, to meet their standards. Mm -hmm. And that left group, that leftist group of America does not represent every American family. They don't even represent the majority of Americans. Absolutely. They're just some more vocal. So this is a good point of we can, uh, um, I'm trying to see the clock here. I'm trying to be good with my time here. Yeah, we still have three minutes. Okay. I got to say, I think on this, I've gone back and forth because I can see the argument that once if Target really has capitulated and it really has gone back to never mind you know you have if they really are now standing for the idea that you have to use the restroom of your gender Mm -hmm. I wouldn't drop the boycott and here's the reason why I think I mean I I can see the argument that says look you're you know you want to reward them they shaped up and did the right thing but the American left is so relentless if you think of the number of organizations that have been pushed around by the LGBT activists it's the NBA the NFL all these organizations who are boycotting North Carolina who won't do business there who are pulling events out of there the left is relentless and I think that for a you know, to make an example essentially out of Target for the conservatives to say, you know, you really made a big mistake here. And we want you to know that we actually are, we're as engaged on this issue as the left. We are going to hold on to our family values, our normalcy Mm -hmm. of gender. We're not going to humor this push by the left. I wouldn't mind so much if Target really had a bad quarter or two. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I have to do it forever and put them out of business, Mm -hmm. but to just immediately back off and say, okay, never mind. Plus, as I say, it's not even clear now. This is a friend who's posting on Facebook saying, I'm not sure that Target really did relent. Go ahead. I don't think you want to kill a mosquito with a baseball bat Um, (laughs) because you're you're hurting a company that employs a lot of people that have nothing to do with this i would find out who's behind the decision and maybe put pressure on the organization to fire that person who within target yeah it's probably the whole board i'm telling it had to be a majority vote of the board i would assume this is a board decision i would i would hope that it would be but uh, even more than that i would say that you have a decision here that that is not only not inclusive because it's only looking at a very small segment of our society. It is not including all of the other families out there that may not feel the same way that that are now being forced to to pay for the fact that a small portion of the society feels a certain way and it exposes our kids. I mean, right now with Target, they're not running with a great record between what happened with the whole credit card thing. <laughs> and now we can't even trust our children in the restrooms or the changing rooms. It's, it's just insane. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. Pl- they're playing politics and they really probably should get back to doing business. business. Doing business. I have to say too, I think one of these things, you know, we have these issues that seem so, you know, we're so at odds and we're butting heads and it's so angry on both sides. And But the thing is to remember is there are very simple solutions like what Carrie mentioned a moment ago. Absolutely. Label the family restroom a um, a private. neutral or, or private or, 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 or unisex restroom. Yeah, you can you do, do that and not have this issue, but I'm telling you the left wouldn't be happy with it. Okay, in our final segment, this two hours goes by too fast. We're back for our final segment before you know it. Come back after our break. There are those who dedicate themselves to a sense of honor, to a life of courage, and a commitment to something greater than themselves. They have always defended this nation and each other. They still do. The few. The proud. 
Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. All of us and the music comes on this show. We just love the music. And I'm, I'm glad there's not a video camera running because we're sitting here kind of singing along and dancing along. Love Krista Branch's music. Love our show's theme music. Well, before we launch into our final segment, which comes all too quickly, I did want to take a moment to thank our sponsor. This radio show, Ladies Can We Talk, would not be possible without the generosity of our sponsor, a company in Dallas named GC Works. They perform research in advanced technology, and they deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. Truly cannot thank them enough. Appreciate them so very much. Love doing this radio show. Love, love, love. Okay, so we have one final segment, and we wanted to run through some, we usually run through tweets and quotes, but I wanted to hit the story, and Carrie, I think, is ready to tell about it, involving a... a um, Wedding cake and a gay pastor in Texas. Yes, this uh, man named Jordan Brown, who is pastor of the Open Doors Church in Austin, Texas, uh, ordered a wedding cake from Whole Foods. He asked that the uh, inscription Love Wins be inscribed on the cake and blue icing, and it was. He goes to pay for the cake and then brings it back uh, to Whole Foods, and in the middle of the cake is the word fag. So it says Love Wins fag on it. F-A-G. Yes. And so he decides to file a complaint and he wants to sue Whole Foods. Evidently, he's got some some kind of tax trouble. And so I'm supposing he's looking for some moolah from this little fake hate case. But um, uh, it turns out that the Whole Foods had a security camera and the UPC code sticker that seals the cake shut in the box uh, was in a different spot when he brought it back from when he paid for it. So it, when he paid for it, it was on the top, and when he brought it back, it was on the side and bottom of the cake. So it, he had tampered with the cake. Uh, it's obvious. And hats off to Whole Foods. They're going to sue him back. Yeah, he actually got a lawyer right away, and I don't know if they had a press conference, but mm-hmm. now he's going to sue. One point Whole Foods made was the way these cakes are sold in the boxes, it's a clear I don't know, solid plastic, mm-hmm. but you can see right through. They said you, he could have seen that as he bought it, yeah. I mean, as he paid for it, if it was really there at the time. So, yeah, because the word was right in the middle of the cake, and that's exactly where the cellophane window was. Cellophane so window, he, yeah, he wouldn't He wouldn't have walked out with the cake if it, that, that word. word had been there in the first place. He would have seen it. But the reason I want to talk about this case, and I'm really glad we, we don't have a lot of time in this segment, but I hope we can all chime in on it, is this. I see the American left, especially in his current version today, President Obama, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, the entire leadership, the ilk of the left, lives to create victim classes in America and lives to create the idea that all sorts of American groups, hyphenated American groups, are victims of the cruelty, the meanness, the unfairness of American society. So this guy... This, in fact, he's a pastor who obviously supports same-sex marriage because he's a gay pastor and he was getting a wedding cake for, I don't know who, some, him or somebody else. But he was willing to essentially tell a lie mm-hmm. to get the publicity out there that says, look, see what we've been saying. We're victims. We're hated. We're mistreated. And it was a complete hoax. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Anna, you look like you want to say something. No, I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, you know, it, it, it's unfortunate when we're trying very hard to be inclusive and Whole Foods is trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And then you have somebody here that just wants to make mischief and, and, and pr- be provocative and, and try to prove something that isn't even true about Whole Foods or in many, many, many times in our society. 
In fact, you know what? I forgot this great fact. I, re- I actually read a lot about this case today. The guy at Whole Foods, the employee who did the frosting on the cake, mm-hmm. is a member of the LGBT community. <laughs> okay. Oh, there you right. Oops, you might want to make sure before you do that. I actually see some good news here. And here's the good news I'm seeing. Um, as a mother who raised three kids, I would tell the oldest siblings who were being terrorized by the younger ones, I would say, hey, look, they're just trying to get a reaction out of you. And if you will just ignore them, it takes all the fun out of it. So what I'm seeing is I'm seeing a little bit of pushback, a little bit of ignore from the people that are tired of the provocateurs and those that wish to create fake hate. I'm seeing some pushback. We saw it uh, in 2012 when the boycott with Chick-fil-A. We are seeing it with the 25, uh, 250,000 people that called Target or uh, signed a petition on Target. And we're seeing it with Whole Foods who said, you know what? Back off. Yeah. No fake hate here. Yep. I really, really, I, you know, this story is interesting because I think it, we have um, very different efforts by the American left and the American right to describe American society. Mm-hmm. I think most people on the conservative side would say America is a good country full of good, mm-hmm. noble, honest, hardworking, decent people. And we all... The majority of us, mm-hmm. no matter what our background, ethnicity, or race, we deplore racism. We deplore cruelty. Yeah. We want to embrace each other in the American dream idea. That's what the le- the right tries mm-hmm. to portray about America. What the left lives to do is mm-hmm. to create categories of victims who the left tells them, mm-hmm. you're a victim. Everybody else out there hates you. It's resentment and hatred. And we, the American left, are needed to ride mm-hmm. the white horse in and save the day and bring the power of the government and crash down mm-hmm. and all these people are picking on you. They have just, and we've seen it with race in this particular administration. We've seen it with respect to the uh, LGBT agenda, the same-sex marriage advocates. Mm-hmm. We have so much division created and we cannot unite except around the ideas of America's founding. It's the only thing to unite around that's right yeah another example is the gofundme account that was created when the pizza place in indiana was picked on um common sense americans are are kind of saying you know what there's more of us than there are of them and if we stick together we can say enough absolutely um you know i was going to talk this other case and there's not a lot of time to talk about it but this this hoax created by this texas pastor is not the only hoax that's happened in the last several years by people trying to portray and what really is it's not is trying to portray america as a place that america is not and one particular one happened because i grew up in schenectady in upstate new york and university of albany is right down the road from schenectady and there was a group of three girls three college age uh black students at university of of albany three women were on a bus and they claimed later that they were the victims of assault and verbal abuse and pushed around and by white men and nobody stood up for them and they were really they were harmed by it and they made a big fuss about it. As it turned out, unfortunately for them, there was a video camera in the bus which showed that exactly the opposite happened. Mm. And I actually on those kind of cases, I wish they would be there'd be more political discussion mm-hmm. not about you know just i mean it's good to expose the lie of course mm-hmm. but about this is a this whole story these hoaxes they are a rebuke that the people have to create these hoax stories because the truth is mm-hmm. america is a pretty good place isn't it interesting in both those cases a, a camera was the one 
that exposed the lie. The unspoken witness. Yeah. Well, you know what? We are uh, pushing up against the end of our time. And ladies, can we talk? I um, I always hate when the two hours are up because there are a lot more things we should be talking about. So that's why you have to come back every week to ladies. Can we talk? And um, I want to just we I have a couple tweets. Here's the quick issue we can get to in the next few minutes. So Harry Tubman. There's talk now, but putting Harriet Tubman's picture in place of Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill in America. So 15 seconds, what do you say, Jenny? Good or I, bad? I, 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 to me, it's just like, you know, it sh- we should add something like the, the $2 bill or something for Harriet Tubman. I don't have any issue with her personally, but, but why are we taking away from our American history whether or not we agree with Andrew Jackson or not? He was a pivotal uh, figure in our history. Yes, he was. What do you say? I say reinstate the $2 bill, too. It's a cool dollar bill. My kids used to love to get those. Those were specialties from the Tooth Fairy. Yep. Um, and it would be in Canada's... Uh, they, Canada would be very jealous. They hardly have... Their lowest de- uh, paper denomination now is the $5 bill. So they would be very jealous that we would have two paper dollar bills before yeah. that. I hear someone say, what about a $25 bill? Think of all the times you want to pay $100. $25 is not bad either. Okay, I do have to say my one bit of humor about this story is that there were a bunch of feminists agitating to get a woman's picture on one of the dollar bills in America. So these feminist group are blah, blah, blahing away about women's rights. And so they finally settle on Harriet Tubman, who much to their chagrin they have discovered is was Republican, <laughs> a black Republican, a re- black Republican, <clears throat> Second Amendment, gun toting, shooting Democrats, woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's who they have. So I, I have to say, I just love that. Who was it that they wanted? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they wanted Harry Tubman. They, this is after they chose Harry Tubman as a, as a figure oh. of that. Then they realized, oh wait, she she wasn't exactly. So it, it wasn't Gloria Steinem or anything like that. You, ha- you have to see that the American left seems to be their tent seems to be becoming more and more narrow. <laughs> they, yep. they just can't include everybody anymore. Yeah. Well, on the subject of funny tweets, a young conservative tweet tweeted out. It is ironic that this government that this government chose a Second Amendment supporting Democrat shooting black woman to be on the twenty. I kind of like that this particular. And so, um, well, I I actually not that troubled by it. I read a history of how many people have been on the bills, and it hasn't been Andrew Jackson since time began. I didn't print the list out, but there have been a bunch of people, and honestly, some of them I was thinking, who is that? So I guess I don't feel that troubled by it. I love honoring Harriet Tubman. Now, there's an actual American hero. I mean, risked her life, you know, year after year mm-hmm. helping to free slaves it's a beautiful thing and she was republican because she had her head on straight yeah, <laughs> yeah baby okay well I'm, I'm gonna, <laughs> i want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to ladies can we talk i would urge you to go to ladies can we talk website ladies can we talk.org we have lots of new features up we have good postings we have our, our feed from our facebook page we have statements and comments love to have you visit and our facebook page ladies can we talk is really Really active. Also, I'd love if you'd follow me on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is at Debbie Can We Talk. At Debbie Can We Talk. I want to thank our guests tonight, Attorney General Ken Paxton, Chelsea Yeoman of First Liberty, and Robert Haneke of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. All three interviews were way too short and very, very good. Love having them on. If you have comments or thoughts about the show, I'd really encourage you to email me at ladiescanwetalk at gmail.com. And check out my book, Ladies Can We Talk. It's on Amazon in English and Spanish and on ebook. It's actually full of facts and figures and stories about women's lives blessed by liberty and tune in every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. as we talk truth about America.
Thanks for listening to Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to ladieskanwetalk.org. Ladies Can We Talk, truth about America.